celebrating success, learning from legends, and growing poppies. This is Tall Poppy Talk with Grace Lewis. All right, welcome to Tall Poppy Talk, and this week we have Rod Corbin. Rod has over 30 years of experience as an academic in the field of psychology, and he has worked in high-performance sport New Zealand since 2004. He's attended Olympic and Paralympic Games as a psychologist for the last three cycles. Outside of para-sport, he's worked in sports such as rowing, cycling, hockey, netball, and cricket, and he specializes in supporting athletes, coaches, and all individuals in high-performance programs to pursue the things they care about. Rod has a particular interest in brain injury and its impact not only on the person with the brain injury, but also those around him. I'm very excited to get Rod's thoughts on tall poppy syndrome, athletes in sport, people in sport, and also his career because it's really exciting and very interesting. So welcome, Rod. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks, Grace. That makes me sound very old. And even that intro is is probably five or six years out of date, so I'm even older than that. That's that's quite good. (laughs) Have there been any added sports since then? That one mentions quite a few. Oh, no, any, any sport will pay me, basically. No, just there's been a, there's a, there's a couple more Olympics and Paralympic Games in there. That's all. Oh, how many cycles are we at? I'm trying to work it out. It's four, four, I think, four cycles, maybe. Yeah, I've forgotten. I'm old. I can't remember. Incredible. Oh, that's fantastic. And leads into my first question, because we often talk about high performers and high performing, but how do you perform? define high performance? Yeah, that's a good question, Grace. I think there are lots of definitions flying around. Um, I have my own definition. I don't think you'll see it in a book and it's probably not the most popular one. But I always say a high performance environment or high performance culture is one where it it challenges itself, the organisation, the system, the people in it, it challenges themselves, it challenges them every day in the service of growth and learning. So you'll notice the word winning isn't in there. It's basically yeah. a system that, challenge, that challenges and tries to stretch itself in the service of growth and learning. And that's often one of the issues is that, you know, uh, for, for people in those systems, it is about constant challenge. And as humans, challenge or discomfort is, is something we're, we're, we're designed to avoid. And yeah. so sitting in those systems where you're continually challenged each day is a challenge on its own psychologically. Unfortunately, it is what it is really. I say no, that tension that exists there is a necessary evil of a high performance culture because without it, you don't get growth and learning. And the only analogy I have when I talk about it is, you know, people go to the gym. Um, some people, obviously not me looking at me, but people go to the gym and you go to the gym, the theory behind it is you go to the gym to uh, break muscle, to build muscle. So you lift some weights, it breaks some muscles, um, they sort of repair and hopefully they repair stronger if you've got the right nutrition and recovery. So in that way, you know, you're, you're breaking muscle to make it stronger. And the same thing for resilience in a high performance program, we're almost trying to break, break you, but you know, we're challenging your resilience in the service of, of you being mentally stronger. So that's, that's my definition. It's simply a challenging environment that challenges people every day in the service of growth. Incredible. That my experience is in rowing and I know that we over, not overtrain, but we do an extreme workload so that that 2000 meters, it's far from easy, but comparative to the stress, as you're saying, your body's been under, but I can imagine your definition of high performance then translates to academics, familial, it can kind of go across all industries. Interesting. Um, I like where you've arrived at that definition. And as we pointed out, you have a lot of experience across many fields. 
I was really intrigued by your career journey and I know you've been in some different places. So could you please enlighten us as to maybe outlining your career journey and your experiences in both academic teachings and high performance sport? Yeah, well, people often ask me that, you know, how did you get to where you got to? And it's actually a whole lot of accidents and choices that I made. First choice was to stay at school to play rugby and cricket. That's the only reason I stayed at school in those days. Uh, and I, I guess I was fortunate enough to be academically clever enough to pass exams and go to university. And even then, I only went to university to escape driving a truck and a digger for my father. Um, as most 18-year-olds you know, do, oh, can I, Dad, I've been, you know, can I have a year off? I want to go to university. And uh, so I went to university. I did ended up doing psychology only because I was doing an intermediate degree and I had to have psychology in there. Uh, and so my first degree ended up doing psychology and behavioral ecology or animal behavior. And somehow I scraped through. I don't know how I did that because I wasn't a very good student. I was basically playing rugby and drinking beer. That's all I was doing. Managed to scrape through at the end of that. And um, I then did a master's because I, what else would you do? So I did a master's in psychology. Um, and then at the end of my two year master's, uh, I, I ended up driving a truck for my for my uncle, of all people. And my father would look back, I remember looking back and my father would say to me, I could have saved you five years, you know. But hey, so I was driving a truck for about 12, 18 months. Uh, and then I had a phone call from an old professor at the university saying, hey, look, we have a vacancy. We'd like you to come back and help us run our undergraduate programs for psychology at the University of Auckland. So that's how I ended up back in university. I was, I was a tutor in the psych department. Uh, and then, you know, you're sort of put under a bit of pressure to do a PhD. If you want to go down an academic route, you really, you, you have to have a PhD. And I sat there for a while going, well, what do I want to do a PhD in? I've always liked that sport stuff. Uh, I like my sport. Maybe I'll do that. <clears throat> and there's really no way you know where you could do sports psychology in New Zealand uh, in those days. So I applied for a couple of scholarships overseas and I actually got a couple of scholarships, one to the US and one to the UK. I took the one in the UK because one of my best mates was living in a city where the university was. So that's why I took that one. So I got a PhD. And well, I was looking at the underlying neurological mechanisms that allow athletes to make decisions without thinking, and then looking at the impact that things like emotion might have on those systems. So that's what I did my PhD. It was very sort of academic, very high level, you know, not that really applied, if I'm honest. And then after that, <clears throat> I got a, a lecturing, I lectured in a few universities in the UK, and, and obviously did some research around. Uh, performing under pressure, what happens to the motor system when you perform under pressure. I also did some research in, in a couple of hospitals there around stroke rehab and all sorts of stuff, really. I was just interested in the brain and movement and, and how, how, how it recovers from injury. Um, and then I guess what I was teaching also was a lot of sports psychology. And it came time for me to return to New Zealand because I was getting a young family and I was, didn't really want them to raise them in the UK. I wanted to bring, bring my family up in New Zealand. So I came back to New Zealand. I landed a job uh, at a tertiary institution, which in those days was tied to an organisation called the Academy of Sport. And yeah. Academy of Sport was a non-profit organisation which provided services to the key sports in New Zealand. And so, yeah, I, started, I actually started working in rowing. Uh, as a as a practitioner, 
and that was a big that was a big shock for me. It taught me a lot working in rowing New Zealand. First, it taught me my actually this wasn't a rugby workshop. I did I'm sorry, it wasn't a rowing workshop. I did a, a rugby workshop, and I rocked up and I basically gave these seventeen-year-old kids a lecture on PowerPoint, and I quite quickly learned that I can't do things like that because it's not a lecture. They want you know they're going to bore yeah. them to tears. So I basically had to learn on the job, if I'm honest, about how to be a practitioner in terms of sports psychology uh, and also understand high performance. As an athlete, I was a very average rugby player and a very average cricketer. Um, and then I ended up in a high performance program that was quite successful. Um, and I, it taught me a lot. Rowing taught me a lot about what high performance could look like or what high performance was about. Um, and then I've been really fortunate since then to be involved in lots of sports that have taught me lots of things about what my performance is, and I made lots of mistakes, lots of mistakes. For example, I talk about the two sports that taught me the most were rowing and hockey. Uh, women's, I worked in the women's black sticks for a few years, and I took my model in rowing and I tried to apply it to the black sticks, and it went badly wrong. Um, and and I didn't. That, what that group of women taught me was the importance of relationships. In the work that we do particularly and i should have known that as a psychologist i guess but you know in rowing it wasn't really about relationships it was about getting on the water and working hard whatever. yeah um whereas you know in, in hockey with a bunch of young women it was about connection and relationships and trust so those two sports taught me a lot about actually how i practice one taught me about high performance and what high performance is at its real sharp end the other one taught me about the importance of human connection and relationships um and so I thank both those sports massively for my own development. The other thing I actually was, because I know you sent me the question, I was, I was thinking about it. There's some stuff that I have that I, I don't often mention. So I did all this academic work and I do, I learned a lot of my sports-like practice from working in the sports on the job. But a lot of the skills I draw on, if I'm honest, come from things I did 30 years ago. So I worked as a counsellor in youth, youth line. I worked in a counsellor at Lifeline. I did some drug and alcohol counselling. I did some other community mental health stuff, you know, as a volunteer to, to help me develop as a psychologist if I wanted to be a clinical psychologist. So I, I look back now at those times and go, they were really valuable experiences for me and how I work as a therapist um, in terms of that relationship component. So I guess those, those are the things that shape me. Now, I actually gave a talk the other day and I wrote an introduction for the for the person who introduced me and I got up there and I actually because starting a talk is always the hardest but I find and I went I'm a self-confessed bogan from West Hamilton I was brought up in a blue-collared family but the son of a mechanic that shapes a lot of how I see the world as does my training as a psychologist but as, as does my experience so yes you can do all this training right you can do this formalized training but it is about you and who you are as a person and what you bring because that impacts yeah. what you do and how you do it and then there's your experiences you learn from your clients every day, and I continue to learn. So it was a bit of a bit of a long way because people say, "How do I get to where you got to?" And I go, "Well, you can do your formal qualifications, but there's all these other bits and pieces that go into it." I understand the difference you're saying between rowing and hockey, and I'm sure with every other sport, they're contributing something. As have, having been a rower myself, I understand the mentality. I go in, we rely on others, especially in the boat, but nowhere near as much as hockey or football, soccer, something where you need to know what the other people are thinking and where they're going. Incredible. That feeds into my next question. You work with all these athletes when they're there and when they're in the teams. Do you work with athletes post-retirement? Yeah, so within the high performance system in New Zealand, so you, if they are 
they are in a high performance program they are i think the term keeps changing they they, they become carded or taps funded i think it's now called and if they retire or they get dropped out of the system because their, their performances aren't at the standard they need to be they have a transition that they, they do get some psychology support and they also get sort of athlete performance life support if required so they get a bit of support post that and they get that for six months uh, Grace, there are athletes that have been retired 15 years. I still see every now and then. Um, just you know, and it's over a coffee. It's catch up. How are you getting on? Uh, and I feel really privileged that they still do that from time to time. So oh, I must have done a reasonable job. I don't think I'm a complete fuss. Um, so because I think there is a there is a massive challenge for individuals once they transition out. Uh, I don't know where we get onto it. But if we don't, I'll talk about it now. I think one of the issues with, with athletes and younger athletes is that their identity is so wrapped up in this thing about being an athlete. You know, this, this is what defines me. And they might do that for a lot of their really formative adult life in their 20s. And then they retire or they get dropped out of the system and they're 28, 29, 30. And so there's this almost this existential crisis around who am I, what am I, what has life got in store for me? And that's a massive, massive transition and so, and so even though the system is set, is set up a little bit to support them, I think there's a lot more support needed for those individuals. So yes, answer to you, short answer to your question is yes, there are people to still work with. And it is, to your point, athletically, most people hit retirement for whatever reason. We're talking 30s, at, mm. if they've continued, and that's very young for a lot of mm. fields as yourself getting into PhD. By the time you finish that, you're you're nearing that 30 when you're really hitting your run. And for those athletes, they're wrapping up. Is that a fair yeah. statement? Yeah. I always say I didn't get my first real job till I was 30. I loved it. <laughs> well, I think, I, think my, I think my father, my, my, my father brought up in the 60s, blue-collar person, thought I was, he thought I was skiving. Uh, I, I didn't get my first job till I was 30, I reckon. Had a good time. But you're right. So, yeah. That, so, and this is also a thing with, with athletes. I talk, so as an 18 or 19-year-old, you sort of sit there, you go through this transition about this is what I'm going to do with my life, you know, and you start to plan it all out. For an athlete, you don't typically go through that till you're 28, 29. So you've almost got to go through the same transition that most of us have gone through at the age of 18, 19. But you're a little bit older, and then there's this social pressures that, you know, you should be married, you should have a family, you should have a mortgage by now, you know. Um, yeah. But often, many of them don't. And that's also challenging for them. And that also relates to social media. That's obviously a huge topic. And I want to discuss a little bit in your expertise, experience with those athletes in and out, and just yourself, mm. your experience with humans. What are your thoughts on the evolving nature of pressure brought about through social media? And to your point of those retiring athletes, they're feeling the pressure to have a house, to be married, to have done these things probably from people they're just seen, but a huge amount of that is brought on by social media. So what are your thoughts about that? Hmm. I think the, the things about, you know, having a mortgage, being married, having kids, that's a social pressure that's always been there. Uh, it's a cultural thing, I think. However, I, I do talk about, this. someone said, someone's, people often say, why is, there, why is there such an increase in mental health issues uh, at present? And it's not, it's, there's not one answer. But grumpy old me goes by social media, that's what it is. And, I, and a lot of social media drives a lot of it, I think, because by nature, humans are predisposed to this thing called the law of inevitable comparisons. 
That is, we are hardwired to look at other people and compare ourselves to them and then come up short. Uh, that's what I said. And then, so then you've got social media where people are presenting their, their lives on social media about you know, how, how fantastic things are and it's what a, what a fantastic life I'm living. And everyone looks at it and goes, well, geez, that's not me. Oh, my, life's, my life's a bit shit, really. Um, and yet, and they'll maybe post some stuff that's a bit fake and then they feel bad because they're posting stuff that's not true. So I think social media, social media today drives a lot of that. It just it puts the law of inevitable comparisons on steroids, I think. And then there's all this rhetoric around, you know, living your best life. Got to live your best life. And I go, what, what, what's, what is your best life? Can't you just live your life? If you go into a gym, even the high performance gyms, again, because I have a reputation of being grumpy, old, and cynical, probably because I am, I walk into a gym and go, you know, be the best you can be. And I go, oh, really? Does it really have to be there? You know, do you really have to be the, what, what is your best? You know? So again, it's the same sort of stuff as, as social media. Um, the other thing I talk about with athletes is that I, I can have a bad day at the office. During this interview, I could, I could swear a little bit too much or I might give a pretty silly answer. I might not even be that good. You know, and, and it might be, it might get people, other people might see it. But typically, if you come and see me and I have a bad day at the office, you might leave my office and go, well, what was it poor today? He's not, he wasn't that good a psychologist today. And yeah. off you go. And I go, yeah, well, I wasn't really a psychologist, but I'm, I'm fine. Yeah. If I'm an athlete, particularly an athlete in the, in the public eye and I have a bad day at the office, Everyone sees it and they report on it. And then the, I'm reminded of it 12 months later. You know, if I have a, if I have a, even if I have a good performance, oh, you know, Rod was fantastic today. He took five wickets and scored 60 runs last year. Though. I remember he, he, he got hit all over the ground and he got two ducks. You know, yeah. so, so my poor performance as an elite athlete is, is I'm reminded of it continually. Whereas me, General Joel or Jane Bloggs, psychologist, I know I've had a bad day. But no one else really knows, apart from my poor old client who sat there. So that's the other thing that is that is that our elite athletes' failings are often presented to the world through social media. It's a public record. Yeah, yeah, it's a public record of it. Yeah, and it's people's full-time job to track sport yeah. and to update. And hey, they've had a good year, but remember when they fell on this yeah. race or regatta yeah. last year? Yeah. And I've, I've got some cricketing, I work in cricket, but I've got guys who are in their 40s who retired from cricket, and particularly in India, India's got a massive social media presence, and, and they will still get trolled on social media, you know, if they've been a commentator or something like that, reminding them of what, you know, how they got, how they didn't score runs, or, you know, and, and it actually, it gets to them, you know. Oh, it would. And that's hmm. the initiative and the thing I'm focusing on with Tall Poppy Talk is, to that point of tall poppy syndrome it's cutting people down it's reminding them of those failings and mm. i would like to ask you to describe in your words what tall poppy syndrome is and if you've experienced it yourself and seen it in others yeah well, well tall poppy syndrome i think as most of us know it's a, is that propensity to to uh chop someone down who's done something well or you know or is or is seen to have, have done well and I think some cultures, and I'm going to say, and I have no evidence for it, it's just my, you know, my experiences. And I guess when I'm sort of sitting here trying to conceptualise what goes on within our culture, as, as New Zealanders in particular, I think New Zealanders are particularly good at it. And I think it's, it's to do with our colonial history. I'm not a sociologist, so I've got no evidence for this, but I just, I just try and sit here and I reflect on it. 
And I think about where colonial, where uh, 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 British colonial history is, you know, the, our, our ancestors, they leave Britain, most of us, not, not all of us, but a lot many people who came to New Zealand who forged New Zealand as a country, as a white colonial country in those days, escaped the classes system. And so there's this rhetoric around not getting above your station, you know, so don't, be, don't get too big for your boots. So when people do well in a New Zealand context, I think that plays out for us. You know, don't look at Grace, she's doing a pod, don't let her get too big for her boots. Look at Rod Corbin, look what he's doing. He's, you know, he's, he's just a board from West Auckland, you know. What's he doing? Don't get above your station, you know, you, yeah. you keep to your place. You know, we're all equal, you know. And I think so. I think it plays out in a New Zealand context in that way. And that's, uh, it's really interesting. I, you know, I talk to friends of mine who are immigrants who've come to New Zealand from other cultures. Uh, they're amazed at some, and you'll hear it in our language, you know, even that way we talk, um, I know there's some, some clinical psychologists, old sort of gnarly clinical psychologists I know who come from Germany or, or the Netherlands or even South Africa, and the, the, but the Germans and the, the in particular, when I first came to New Zealand, you know, I upset people because I would say things how they are. In New Zealand, they say maybe, might, perhaps, you know, because we're just, we're just trying to walk on eggshells. We don't want to sort of put ourselves out there too much. Yeah. And so I do think it's a real cultural thing for New Zealanders where, you know, where we don't let, if people, we think people are getting above their station, if, we, if we think they think they're better than anyone else, then we chop them down. I think Israel Adesanya is a good example. You know, he's really polarizing. Lots of people love him. Lots of people hate him. You know, it's because he, he's out there. He's, you know, he's proud of who he is. He's not scared to say stuff, you know, whether you agree with it or not. You know, and like I said, some people think that's great, but lots of people think it's, terrible what what is he doing but that's i think it's a cultural thing if i'm honest in terms of my own experiences i don't think i'm very good <laughs> i don't think i don't think I, I don't think i'm suffering from tall bobby syndrome if i'm honest uh that's probably why i just i like to i don't like to sit in the background just maybe because i'm scared of it maybe i don't want to be maybe i don't want someone to tell me i'm better that, that i'm getting above my station so, uh, but yeah definitely seeing it with lots of athletes around yeah, just some of the, again, we get social media, some of the, some of the trolling they get on social media, if they say something or, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of the sort of films, girls, they, they, they always, they'll talk to me about some of the comments they'll see on social media that, that are really quite unfair and quite hurtful. I think social media goes hand in hand with the tall poppy syndrome, if I'm honest, it sort of feeds it as well. Absolutely. Very interesting, not even theory uh, that you have about the colonial background i hadn't i hadn't heard that before and it makes total sense it's don't think you're better than you are that's my interpretation sometimes the tall poppy syndrome is you can think you're good but let's put a cap on that and let's yeah. maybe remind yeah. you so to your point if someone stays under that cap and they're maybe not boastful yeah they good. might not experience it but then internally you're holding yourself back you're limiting yourself and I'm trying to promote this conversation, this dialogue of, hey, it's okay to push yourself out there because you doing that allows Rod to do that or allows that person to do it because, oh, if Grace yeah. wants to talk about it, I can lift it up. I'm hoping to create that conversation. So thank yeah. you. And that's a real good point because, again, as a psychologist, I'm often saying to people, we are so hard on ourselves. We have this inner critic that, you know, that, that is always, beating, we're beating ourselves up. And so, and I, I must find this hard to do myself, but it's something is that, gee, when we do something good, 
actually take a moment to acknowledge it. Yeah, actually, I did, I did pretty well. You know, like you know, this today I've been a shit psychologist. Actually, but last week I thought I was pretty good. Actually, I've got a couple of emails from people. So I don't think we remind ourselves enough when when we're successful, when we feel like we've done something good, because we're yeah. so bloody good at at telling ourselves how bad we are. There's often a, there's a little uh, a little t a tip or strategy or technique I talk to people about, or a little analogy I give them as I go. Hey, they come to me and they beat themselves up, and I say, "So, um, I sort of run something past you. So, what if I walk behind you just here all day, going, Grace, you're not very good. You're a bit rubbish, really. You know, what are you doing? You know, what, what do you think you're doing? You're you're a bit you're a bit silly, aren't you? What are you doing that for? You know, you're no good at all. How long would it be before you turn around and punch me or tell me to piss off? It wouldn't be very long. It maybe you go maybe five minutes if that." Less, and yeah. yet, and yet, that's what we do to ourselves every day. You know, we walk around. So, you know, why would we do that to ourselves? So again, for me, it's as we are so self-critical, and that drives us to do well. Uh, it's, there's a bit of functionality to that, but at the same time, why don't we? Why don't we acknowledge when we've done things well? I think that's really important. I like that. To the point of having someone negative behind you. Imagine if you had mm. someone affirming you. Rod, that's mm. awesome. Oh, yes, right. yeah. you, you saw yeah. that smile, yeah. like yeah. having those thoughts for ourselves and maybe to yeah. others. Um, I'm going to ask a question. I was going to ask that later, but in terms of tangible methods, practices or tips that you would have, I was thinking athletes, but people in general who do grapple with not only those internal, but external pressures, primarily athletes mm. who do have people commenting what tangible tips are there to try and deal with that pressure? Hmm. It's a tough one because I don't, I don't want to practice what I call cruel optimism. And cruel optimism is things like, hey, do your 10 minutes of mindfulness breathing each day. Take a moment to be grateful three times a day and you'll be all sweet. Now, there's no doubt that those types of things are useful, but but they are uh, a thing called cruel optimism. They're not going to change if you know if your life's if you got you know if you're living in a horrible situation or you know you're financially strapped it's not going to magically make your life better so i don't want to be somebody who practices cruel optimism yeah. but here we go uh one of the things i talk about uh, in sport a lot uh and i'm often asking athletes teams and coaches this question is what is your more than winning so we play sport, we do sport to win. I don't care what level it is, whether it's under fives, rugby or the All Blacks or whatever. The goal of sport is to win. If you do sports science at university or at school, if you look at the definition of competition, it's actually competition. Sports are as competition. It's one of the definitions of it. And I go, but so there has to be more than winning. You know, because sometimes you win, sometimes you don't. So I'm, I'm after, and some people say, what's your why? What's the value in it? But I go simply, what is your more than winning? It's often, you know, I want to, I want to be physically fit. I want to be strong. And the question might be, well, why, why is that important to you? Or it might be, um, I want to be connected to others. You know, I want to enjoy myself. I want to have a laugh. So it's trying to work out what that more than winning is. And not to say that the winning is not important because the winning is important. That's why we do it, um, particularly at an elite level. But there has to be more than winning because it's so easy to get wrapped up in the outcome. And when the outcome goes our way, we're stoked. And when it doesn't, we have a bit of a cry. But either way, there has to be more than winning because that emotion dies eventually, dies down eventually. So that'd be my first thing, tangible thing. I'm often asking people that question: What's more than the winning? And once you can ask, once you can start to identify what that is, how do you engage in that? So beyond going to training to learn to, I don't know, do a particular thing or go to a game to win, 
what's the other reason I'm here? Is to have a laugh with my mates. It's to physically push myself. So that's that's the tangible, start one tangible thing. Um, I didn't actually didn't have that question. I did have some notes for my tips. Um, I think there's another bit in there, and you talked about people with self-doubt or, or put themselves under a lot of pressure. As a psychologist, I talk about my job is to help you look, recognize what your shadows are. We all have them. Yeah. Not good enough, must be perfect. Uh, what do other people think about me? I must make people happy, blah, blah. There's loads of them. And so I go, we're not going to change those things because they're part of who we are. But if I can start to recognize my shadows and when they show up and they start to tell me stories, because that's all they are, stories of, about me and, and, and my failings, then I can recognize it as just my shadows. And that's part of who I am. And yeah, they're, a little, they're telling me unpleasant stories about myself, but they're just stories. So recognizing that is one thing. So but I was talking about your, your self-exploration. Uh, it's, it's the bit where athletes are often, they're not always happy to talk about. They want to go and see the sports cycle, give them a nice little tip, like a, some positive self-talk or some goal setting, and that'll, that'll sort me out. As soon as we start talking about hmm, your shadows or what's more than the winning, they go, oh my God, I don't want to talk about that stuff because that's really scary. But unfortunately for me, that's the, that's the bit for people to perform at any level. They actually have to really understand their shadows and be okay with them and recognize them when they show up. So that's that's probably not a tangible. It's just a, a it's just a bit of a work on is that that that, um, that self compassion, that bit of self exploration. I wonder why I responded like that. What was that about? Why did they get really anxious about that? Where does that expectation come from? What is that about for me? You know? um, yeah. So that's just that's the sort rest of the real psychologist to me at getting people to ask themselves those questions. The other thing is to recognise that your feelings are totally normal. It's your brain doing its job. Your brain does not like unpredictability or discomfort and so when it when it detects it it tells you to do some to avoid it encourage it's just doing its job so i go just recognize it's your brain doing its job it's trying to look after you and it's not your worry that's your problem it's your worry about your worry why am i feeling i shouldn't feel like this you know i, sh I should be i should be confident so i go yeah it's, it's your worry your worry is normal and we're all and we're also taught growing up that some emotions are good and some are bad don't be sad, be happy, don't cry, cheer up. And we go, well, why, why can't I be sad? My, my little dog's just died, I wanna be sad, you know? Um, but I think yeah, we're just conditioned that some emotions are, are bad and are to be avoided at all costs, and some are good, and they're the ones we want. But just try and understand, it's just an emotion I'm having. It's, it's, it's just a normal response to the unpredictability of what's about to happen for me. Gee, I could lose and I'll feel a bit stink. Well, that's, you know, gee, I'd be a bit worried about that too. But that's a possibility. Yeah. Wow. Those are very practical, tangible for anyone, not just in athletics. So thank you for sharing. And I guess this answers my next question you would have seen of, is it possible that someone's never going to feel negative mental health? They're always going to feel great? Uh, yeah, they're a psychopath probably. Yeah. Um, no, again, all the mental health stuff that's going on at the moment, we try and educate people on mental health and well-being. So we view mental health as a continuum. And people will go up and down that continuum. And, it, and, it, and again, this is the grumpy, cynical person in there goes, you know, we're, we're taught that we should all be at one end, the thriving end. We should all be thriving. That's almost the social media stuff. Here, you know, and it's in our modern rhetoric about thriving. And when I give these mental health talks, I think I've given a couple, and I was talking to the slide with the continuum on it, the thriving, and I have this little internal dialogue in my head. That's what it's like to live in the head of a psychologist, this internal dialogue. I mean, you're a bloody hypocrite. 
last time you were thriving, you were 12, you know, before you had to sit university exams, before you had to pay your bills, before you had a fight with your girlfriend, you know, um, you had to worry about your kids when they're growing up. But I think there's this myth that we should always be thriving. And the reality is that sometimes life is hard. Sometimes, you know, we've got to sit exams. I'll often get a phone call from a physio or someone saying, oh, look, I've seen Grace today. She was in my clinic and I think you need to see her. And I go, why? Oh, she was really upset. She was really stressed out. So I'll, I'll get hold of Grace. I'll get hold of you and say, oh, how are you going, Grace? Oh, yeah, I'm a little bit stressed out. And I've got, I've got like a whole lot of uni, uni exams and I've got training and I've had a bit of a fight with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Um, but I, but exams will be over soon. You know, I'll be sweet. And so I go, it's okay for people to be stressed sometimes. So again, it's that myth that we should, we should always be happy and, and we should always be able to cope. Sometimes life is difficult. The issue becomes when we struggle for long periods of time and on the continuum we start, we go the wrong way and we keep going the wrong way until finally we get to a point where we are unwell. We spiral. So I always, yeah, we spiral. So I talk about, you know, just just take a moment just to, just to notice where you are on that continuum. And if you feel like you're stuck or you're struggling and you continue going the wrong way, then there's some stuff we need to do. But to answer to your question, again, it's human nature for us to sometimes be, be, be well in our mental health. And sometimes we won't be as you know, well as we would like to be. Uh, yeah, so yeah, the mental health continuum has one end, the real thriving, the well-being, but the other end is the mental ill health end. And I always go, what's my job as a psychologist in sports? I go, I try not to practice clinical psychology because clinical psychology is the domain of the unwell. I work with well people and I try and keep them well in environments that are challenging. Going back to my, your first question, what's a high performance environment? They're in an environment that's challenging. So they're exposed to this low level chronic stress. We know that chronic, low level chronic stress uh, actually can lead to mental ill health. So my job is to keep people well in those environments that are challenging. Now, every now and again, they will be unwell because that's just the nature of humans. You know, we know that a fair proportion of us will, will suffer from some mental ill health at some stage in our lives. And so my job is to is to recognize that and then to take them out of that we can. Yeah. And then you work obviously with these high performers as they're going through these ebbs and flows, essentially as they're describing, which we all naturally have. Mm. What message would you send to the larger community, whether it's the crowds, the public in New Zealand in general, that could perhaps give us some more insight into the athlete's mind? What would you like mm. the general public to know when we're watching and critiquing were commenting on these athletes and their performance. One is that they're human beings like like us. Sometimes we, we hold them up on these pedestals and think they are robots and are immune and they're mentally strong and tough. Uh, but they are no different from me or you. They have the same vulnerabilities and the same fragilities as us. In fact, often I'll have more because, as we I've talked about before, their identity is often so fused with their performance. And when they come up short, they're already beating themselves up. And then it's highlighted, everyone else starts beating them up as well. So often they're under, a, as I said, their failings are exposed to the world. And, and that's really hard for them to manage often. And no athlete I've ever known goes out there to perform badly. Uh, sometimes they do, but they don't do it on purpose. So I think the first thing is to realise that they're humans and, and, they, and they, they experience the same things as us. Um, 
I think the issue is, and it was actually Amelia and Ekinasia did an Instagram post well, probably about 18 months, two years ago now, where she posted something on her own struggles. And she said, look, just because I'm the successful athlete doesn't mean I don't struggle or suffer like the rest of you. And someone had asked me at the time, what do you think of those comments? I said that those, you know, there's been there's been herself, there's been Sophie Devine, Amelia Kerr, there's been lots of athletes come out and I've gone, that's such a good message because it, you know, it says that, that you know they they are just as vulnerable as us they're not they're not superhuman and so that's the thing i think one of my messages would be let's not put our athletes up on a pedestal and think that they've got all their shit sorted because they've got no less of their shit sorted than we have thank you that's incredible i have i've learned a lot just from talking to you today and i hope everyone takes that message and everything else there's a lot to unpack. And I know when I listen to this two, three times, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And thank you for everything you're doing for a high performance sport, but taking the time to really explain that to me and those listeners. And I have a little bit of a curveball last question that you don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Just to keep things light as we finish up, I've been asking my, my guests, if you could have one meal for the rest of your life, what's it going to be? Says a lot about a person. Do I, do I get to have a drink with it as well? Yes. Okay. But any time of the day, this is the meal. Oh, any time of the day. Oh my God. That's, that's, that is it. Oh no. Any time of the, the day, what would I eat? The drink question when you ask that, I said, oh, be careful. I'd have a red wine. I think I'd have a red wine no matter what time of the day was. That's okay. I think it's, it's culturally and socially acceptable, I think, red wine. Uh, a nice central Otago Pinot would probably be my choice. Um, what would I eat though? Any time of the day? Because I was actually going to go steak. I call it steak with the mushroom sauce, but I wouldn't want that for breakfast. What would I have? I would curry. I would eat curry. I'd eat curry for breakfast, curry for lunch. In fact, when I've gone to India, because they have curry and I have, I've eaten curry for lunch, breakfast, and dinner. There we go. Wow. Red, your red wine. With my red wine. Yeah. <laughs> that's brilliant thank you so much rod i cannot emphasize it enough i'm really excited about this and appreciate everything you're doing thank you so much for joining me on tall poppy talk no worries grace have a go as well thank you so much for listening to tall poppy talk we'll see you next time feel free to check us out on socials youtube and the website thanks for today's guest